It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact. They sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, and, uh, but they're there. Welcome to History Gems. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Cromwell, wife of the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, and a bit about Cromwell himself. Here to tell us more is Stuart Orme, curator of the Cromwell Museum in Huntingdon. So there is a very much a, a deliberate attempt to sort of muddy uh, the Cromwell's reputations, and uh, Elizabeth is a target for this. And the two ways in early modern society you kind of, within the popular press, you try and vilify a woman's reputation is one is to try and imply that she's grasping. The other, of course, is also to imply that there is sexual immorality. It's the most peculiar recipe book ever written in the fact that it's uh, 102 recipes, which are kind of middling sort recipes and, and quite credibly are ones that were actually used by uh, the, the Cromwells. Yeah. But it's got an essay at the beginning of it, which basically is slagging the Cromwells off. I sort of say to visitors today, if you want a kind of modern comparison, think if you were to go out and buy a cookery book written by Michelle Obama <laughs> and then find the first third of it actually was an essay written by Donald Trump's slagging like off her husband. Stuart has had a varied career in the world of history and heritage, and he has contributed regularly to the Cromwellian Journal. I've spoken alongside Stuart myself before in 2019, and so I'm really looking forward to chatting to him again today. Hello Stuart, and welcome to History Gems. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Nicola, and uh, great pleasure to see you again. And um, thank you very much for having uh, inviting us for a chat. It's a huge privilege, and I'm really, really excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Cromwell, the wife mm. of Oliver Cromwell, and certainly a lesser known figure than her husband. So, can we just start with perhaps a bit of background into Oliver and Elizabeth Cromwell? Sure. Um, well, I mean, uh, the, the, obviously, we're, we're sort of the Cromwell Museum based in Huntingdon, which is um, Hunter Cromwell's hometown. He was sort of born here in 1599 from a sort of relatively minor gentry family, sort of middling sort. His, his father was the second son. And um, he, he atoned at the local grammar school, which is based in the museum building that we, we have today. Uh, went to university in Cambridge and basically then took over the family business, which in modern terms, you might describe him as being a kind of buy-to-let landlord. Um, and then uh, subsequently he had financial problems, moved to dives where um, he had a religious conversion to uh, the, the kind of godly party, what we commonly commonly known as Puritans. Um, he, his fortunes were restored in the 1630s when he inherited property in Ely and was elected a Member of Parliament in uh, 1640, both the short and the long Parliament, uh, where he served as MP for Cambridge. He was a relatively minor figure at the beginning of the Civil War, but uh, started a military career simply on the basis of his station in society, and proved to be very good at it. At the age of 43, he, with no military experience, he proved to be a very talented soldier. And um, from that, of course, he rose to being one of the most prominent figures in the country, and eventually, of course, Lord Protector. 
Um, he's today, of course, one of the most famous people in British history, also one of the most controversial. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we, we recognise and try and tell his story warts and all, you know, particularly with things like his campaigns in Ireland, which, of course, uh, are extremely divisive even now. Um, his wife, Elizabeth's an interesting character. We know uh, far less about her. Um, she, we know she was born in 1598. Her father, um, Sir James Borchier, was a wealthy fur and leather dealer in London, owned a number of amount of property in London and in Essex. Uh, she was the eldest of his 12 children. Um, we assume she had some kind of education because uh, she, we know she was literate. There's uh, at least one surviving letter between her and Cromwell. Um, how the couple met, we, we simply don't know. There's various suggestions, but we know they were married in August 1620 at St. Giles Church in Cripplegate. And the relationship seems to have been a very strong one. Um, their few surviving letters um, do seem very tender between the two of them, and there's no serious suggestion that Cromwell ever strayed from the marriage bed. And um, uh, they had nine children, um, unfortunately, one of whom was lost in infancy, and, and the two eldest boys died fairly young and um so she she sort of becomes this sort of figure who who is important hugely important to cromwell but that her exact status um within sort of you know the protectorate court and uh uh the the influence she had on him is is debated even today well that's something i was going to ask you about actually because certainly from my own personal point of view i don't know an awful lot about elizabeth Cromwell and Mm. so do you think is it fair to say then that she was living out of the limelight and perhaps did prefer the quieter life? I think the evidence kind of tends in that direction yes Um, and there was sort of suggestions in various royalist news books particularly after the restoration that she was uh, an influential figure on him and particularly there's a very scurrilous publication which we have an original copy of published in 1664 which is called The Court and Kitchen of Elizabeth Cromwell, um, um, which is a very strange book. It uh, purports to be Elizabeth Cromwell's cookery book, oh. um, but it's it's the most peculiar recipe book ever written in the fact that it's uh, 102 recipes, which are kind of middling sort recipes and, and quite credibly are ones that were actually um, used by uh, the, the Cromwells. Yeah. Um, but it's got an essay at the beginning of it, which basically is slagging the Cromwells off. Oh, right. it's very odd um you know i I sort of say to visitors today if you want a kind of modern comparison think if you were to go out and buy a cookery book written by michelle obama (laughs) and then find the first third of it actually was an essay written by donald trump's slagging off her husband that not that i'm comparing the obamas to cromwell's at all no that that, that's kind of the sort of the, the idea behind it it's it's very peculiar how bizarre um, uh, and, and there's sort of suggestions inside this that um, the introduction that, that, that um, Elizabeth is a sort of the power behind the throne and is manipulating her husband. Uh, but actually, there is very little in the way of sort of evidence for that. Um, we, we simply don't know how much influence she had. And actually, she seems to have been taken a bit of the back seat in terms of the protective court. Um, she seems to have been very proud of her husband. She seems to have spent a lot of time commissioning portraits of him. Oh, um, um, but uh, there sort of doesn't seem to be very much evidence that she sort of involved herself in politics at all. So maybe um, a bit more, um, a bit more influential in the domestic sphere, maybe. 
Yes, very much so. I mean, an interesting comparison is um, obviously another uh, famous uh, MP for Huntingdon, as Cromwell also was at one point, uh, was John Major. And uh, a couple of my volunteers make the comparison that um, think think of uh, Elizabeth Cromwell like Norma Major, sort of, you know, very quiet in the background and sort of not getting involved uh, and so on. Uh, particularly given the fact that whilst as Cromwell was Lord Protector, he had a constitutional role. Mm. Um, Elizabeth was given the title uh, her, the Lady Protectress, but it, that didn't carry with it any kind of formal status, not like the First Lady of the United States uh, today, for example. So um, her, her status at court was, you know, respected, but um, there, there wasn't sort of any kind of uh, formal political involvement or anything like that that went with it. Okay, um, but we know also that she, unlike obviously her husband, we know that she survived to see the restoration of the monarchy mm-hmm. in 1660. And it was this time sort of reported that she'd apparently collected a huge amount of valuable goods with which she'd intended to flee. And I mean, presumably, she was very much living the high life during Cromwell's ascendancy. And she had acquired a great deal of material wealth during that time? There's no specific evidence for that. Um, I mean, obviously, there was the sort of assertions by the Royalist news books, but this can be seen, I think, largely as being um, part of the kind of anti-Cromwell uh, wave of press that came out after the restoration of the monarchy. There was a sort of a, a rush to sort of condemn the Cromwellian regime, both in terms of people who had guilty consciences of been, having been involved with it and wanting to ingratiate the themselves with the restored monarchy, but also, of course, the restored monarchy themselves. So, um, you know, the, the greatest expression of this, of course, was the eventually the exhi, uh, exhumation of Cromwell's corpse in January 1661, the ceremonial degrading and hanging at Tyburn and then his head being stuck outside Westminster Hall. Was Elizabeth so, alive at that time, can I just ask? Yeah, she was. She died in 1665. Oh. So she was alive at this time, um, although she'd left London by this point. Right. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the the idea that her husband, you know, had been treated in such a fashion was, you know, must have been quite an emotional shock to her. We can only imagine that. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so there, there was very much a kind of degrading. There was sort of, obviously, there's a, uh, as you know, there's a, a sort of wave of the popular press in this period. Um, yeah. The Civil War, the the the, the um, relaxation of the censorship at the beginning of the Civil War led to an explosion in the popular press, and it's used hugely for propaganda purposes. And there's even you know these news books, even though there was an attempt at censorship by this period, who couldn't quite put the genie back into the bottle. And um, anything that was used to denigrate kind of the Cromwellian regime, not least because the restoration itself wasn't as secure as we might like to, you know, imagine with a kind of Whig interpretation of history. Uh, There was no certainty the restoration was ever going to happen until Cromwell's death. Um, You know, the protectorate seemed very secure. And, you know, there was always the fear within the the Royal Restoration Court that, you know, they might find themselves losing power again, which is why Charles handled things, you know, quite delicately in some ways. Um, So there is a very much a a deliberate attempt to sort of muddy um, uh, the Cromwell's reputations. And uh, Elizabeth is a target for this. And the two ways in early modern society, you kind of within the popular press, you try and vilify a woman's reputation is one is to try and imply that she's grasping that she's getting financial gain out of this Mm. and that's what these news books are saying to some extent 
um, as is also the, the, the introduction to um, um, the Cromwell Cookery Book. The other, of course, is also to imply that there is sexual immorality. And it's interesting that the Cromwell Cookery Book, um, the actual title is The Court and Kitchen of Elizabeth, commonly called Joan Cromwell. Now, Joan is a name that's associated with common prostitutes in the 17th century. Oh. So there's a way of implying sexual licentiousness. Actually, there's no evidence for this at all. And um, uh, Elizabeth herself hotly denied that she'd uh, profited from the court. She actually wrote to Charles II hotly denying any of this. And actually, she herself lived very quietly. There's no evidence that the, you know she had a... A, a lavish lifestyle afterwards. She lived quietly with her widowed son-in-law, John Claypool, at um, Northborough Manor near Peterborough and um, died under quiet circumstances there in 1665 and is buried in the parish church. So um, uh, the, 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 I, think, I think we can kind of generally discount the idea that we sort of profited from the regime. That's very interesting. But I was quite interested also when you said that she actually made the effort to write to Charles II and deny that mm. she had you know, acquired all, all of this wealth and was planning to, to make away with it. And I think that's also quite uh, says something about her character, that perhaps she was quite a strong character and prepared to stand up for herself, maybe? Absolutely. And I think it was also she was asking, um, and again, there was a fear that there might be reprisals and retribution against the Cromwell family. Um, So the letter also talks about making sure that, you know, she wasn't involved in any of the political decisions of the regime. And as far as she was concerned, she just wanted to live quietly. And and it's true, actually, the Cromwells were left alone as a family. Obviously, Oliver himself is dug up, but um, you know, his his uh, son Henry uh, settles quietly at Wickham in Cambridgeshire. Um, his daughters are already sort of well married into aristocratic families and actually do very well for themselves. Um, the only member of the family who uh, leaves the country is Richard Cromwell, of course, uh, famously tumble down Dick. Yeah. Um, who, who leaves the country actually not through not so much through fear of reprisals from the, the royalists, but actually because he's heavily in debt, as he always was, ah. and uh, he was actually fleeing his creditors. So, uh, so, so the, the the restoration monarch regime actually left the kind of the Cromwells much alone. Um, it was the reprisals were very much focused upon um, the regicides. Mm. So those who were obviously implicated in one way or another in the trial and execution of Charles the First. I would like to talk a bit now about the Cromwell Museum and you spoke at the beginning of our conversation about how about the links with Oliver Cromwell but I would just like to know how the museum itself came into being. Yes I mean it's it's an interesting story actually because actually Huntingdon as, as Cromwell's hometown has always had a sort of slightly um, ambivalent relationship with its most famous son um, back in the 19th century, particularly when uh, most people in the area were very high church, they were very embarrassed about their sort of relationship with Cromwell, which, uh, whereas St. Ives down the road where he settled with was very non-conformist and therefore quite proud of its association with him, which is why today there's a statue of Cromwell in St. Ives, but there isn't one in, in, in Huntingdon. Oh, I see. Uh, um, which it, <clears throat> really only changed really in the mid 20th century. In 1958, there was um, an exhibition held in, here in Huntington Town Hall um, for the 300th anniversary of Cromwell's death. And they collected together artifacts that were held in local collections 
um, or borrowed from the Cromwell's descendants or from other collectors. And the exhibition proved to be such a huge success that there was a campaign raised to create a permanent museum. Um, so that, that led to the foundation of the museum, which was opened in 1962. Um, it was originally run by the local authority up until 2014. Um, we're now an independent charity. Um, we have the best collection in the world of items relating to Cromwell, which has obviously been acquired over the last uh, half century or so, but also about 20% of our collection is uh, very kindly loaned to us by the Bush family, who are Cromwell's immediate descendants. Oh, wow. um, they're descended through Henry Cromwell, his uh, youngest son. Um, the, the last member to be called Cromwell was in the early 19th century, and she married a Reverend Bush, so hence today they're the Bush family. And uh, they, they, since 1962, have very kindly loaned these amazing personal artefacts, which obviously, because they've been in the family for the last 350 years ago, have a remarkable provenance to them. Yeah. Um, you know, there are lots of things in museums which are claimed to be associated with famous individuals. Mm. The problem is always establishing provenance for them. And uh, here we've got that. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's incredible in itself. And. Mm -hmm. Turning our attention to some of or one particular piece in the museum's contents and in the museum you do have a gold agate and ruby pendant with a carved central cameo of Oliver Cromwell um, mm. with a later inscription on the back. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about this piece? So this piece, yes, again, is uh, one of the items loaned to us by the Bush family. So uh, we've had it since 1962, and it uh, again has this, this obviously a very good provenance for having belonged to the Cromwells, given the fact it's been passed down the family. Yeah. Um, so yes, as you say, this is a little gold pendant. It's about five centimeters long by about two and a half centimeters wide, so two inch by two inches in in size. Um, gold with this, as you say, this uh, carved onyx cameo head of Cromwell in profile with a sort of wreath around his head. So very much the image of uh, the late protectorship, whereas that's the, sort of the image that appeared also on coins of this period. Um, and then around the outside of it are 15 beautifully um, kind of cut little rubies. Um, it's a gold um, a sort of you know, uh, setting for the, for the whole thing would originally have been perhaps on a um, pin to the front of a, a dress or um, on a chain or some such. And on the back, as you say, there's a, a later inscription on the back, uh, Oliver Cromwell, Angsco Frat et Hib, Proam Dom 1657, which basically is a sort of uh, a, a shorthand Latin for uh, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England, Scotland, France and Ireland, 1657. And uh, it's reputed that this belonged to Elizabeth Cromwell. Um, there's actually a portrait dating from almost the same time of a, that we have the collection um, painted most likely by Robert Walker, mm. um, which depicts Elizabeth in the, 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 a gown, very nice silk gown of um, uh, uh, the, the lady protectress. And there is a little cameo on the front, and it's been suggested that actually it's this cameo that's depicted in the painting. Unfortunately, it's slightly indistinct, so we can't prove it for certain. Oh. But um, it's uh, it, it's a lovely portrait, and um, it's nice to think that this might actually be that particular jewel that she was wearing. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, given that the provenance on this piece is so solid, it is a fair assumption that it could well have been owned by Elizabeth, do you think? Yes, I mean, I think it's certainly of that sort of status. Um, uh, 
I mean, the Cromwellian courts, uh, you know, they was, did maintain a certain level of status. Um, uh, we, we tend to have this popular image of Cromwell being very dour and uh, sort of, you know, the killjoy and the party pooper, yeah. um, which isn't necessarily the case, actually. I mean, he, we know himself, he, he enjoyed music, just not in church. We know he liked dancing. Um, famously, when his daughter's wedding in 1657, he got a bit tiddly and ran around playing practical jokes on people. He had... Uh, <laughs> You kind of get the impression that if the whoopee cushion had been invented in the 17th century, Cromwell probably would have bought them. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, by no means was it as lavish as the royal courts. The, the kind of, it's worth putting in context that the, the annual grant Cromwell's to run the, the, the sort of court and state, as it were, was about a quarter of a million pounds per year, which, of course, was a huge amount of money in those days. Yeah, um, having said that, in 1660, Charles II was voted five times as much by Parliament. So, uh, you know, it, it was a budget court by comparison. But, um, you know, there was a, a recognition that they needed in obviously to impress, you know, foreign dignitaries and um uh, to sort of, you know, uh, set the seal as being the head of state, then there was a certain amount of style that needed to go with that. Um, and you, know, you look at some of the portraiture of, of uh, people from the Cromwellian court in the 1650s, they're loving wearing kind of the lavish dresses and so on that we actually associate with the Restoration. The beginnings of wigs are starting to be worn at this time. You know, as I say, Cromwell running around pulling wigs off people at this party. Um it, you know, the, the 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 fashion of the 1650s is starting to head in that direction, and certainly at court, it's it's less austere than we might think. That's very interesting because um, I'm the first to admit that I was probably one of those who had the impression that Oliver Cromwell was quite dour. Um, but do you think does this extend to this this need to impress and this um, this need for a certain level of magnificence does that extend to to jewels do we know if Cromwell was interested in jewels or if he he wore jewels or had any um, it's difficult to say I don't there, there, there isn't sort of anything in the way of jewelry per se but certainly we've got items in the collection that uh, were gifted to him at this time which reflect a level of status um, so a number of them seem to be either personal gifts sort of people who were obviously trying to curry favour or diplomatic gifts. <clears throat> so a couple of examples, we've got beautiful gunpowder flask given to him, um, most likely while he was Lord Protector, which is made of ivory, decorated with mother of pearl and uh, amber, and it's an exquisite item. Likewise, this beautiful um, uh, kind of mosaic decorated chest, what's a type of chest known as Pietra Dure, which was given to Cromwell as a diplomatic gift in 1656 by the Grand Duke of Tuscany. And um, it's a Florentine chest that actually contains small uh, glass bottles, which still have a beautifully embroidered caps on the top of them. They've been remarkably preserved and they're still as bright and colourful as the day they were made. And originally these little uh, pots would have contained soaps. So it's a bit like getting an expensive gift basket from the body shop or Lush or something. And uh, we know from a few fragments of some of this soap that survived that actually was scented with orange. So you've got the lovely image of, you know, Oliver Cromwell washing in orange scented soap, um, which was given to him by a gift one of his Italian admirers. Do you think, is it possible that this pendant that we 
you know, associate with Elizabeth Cromwell, let's say. Mm. Um, do you think that that's possible, that that was given to her as a gift, perhaps? It's quite possible, yes. I mean, uh, we don't know the exact circumstances around it, um, uh, whether it was something she commissioned herself or whether it's something that Oliver gave her as a gift. Um, you know, either is entirely possible. Um, unfortunately, as I say, we, we don't simply know the circumstances by which um, we, 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 we know what they say. We're kind of reasonably sure it belonged to her, but the exact circumstances by which she acquired it, unfortunately, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But it, it's entirely possible, yes. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the fact that, as I say, it's sort of this portrait of her husband on there, who she obviously was hugely devoted to, and, as I say, commissioned portraits of, um, you know, it's entirely consistent with her character, I think. Yeah, very much so. And do you think um, that this sort of piece would that have been the typical um the typical typical of the kind of pieces that someone of elizabeth's status would have worn at this time uh certainly in the kind of court level yes i mean i think uh, the interesting thing is of course uh you know this this was sort of catapulting a woman who'd come from you know again you know reasonably comfortable middling sort you know wealthy merchant family um, to then uh, marry in her marriage, she'd married into a again a sort of minor gentry family, but you know they were uh, variable in their circumstances. At one point, living as tenant farmers, mm. uh, so you know to to have to go to kind of what must have been actually quite lavish wealth by comparison. Um, I think it's sort of um, you know it must have been a quite a, a an interesting development in terms of the way the kind of the Cromwells were were elevated as it were, mm. and and one of the things actually which again was used to criticise them after the restoration again it's one of the biggest criticisms that the cookery book levels at them is that the Cromwells basically weren't suited to run the country because they were too common. Um, uh, they were, you know, they 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 weren't sort of born to rule. That's effectively the the way of sort of uh, damning them. And uh, you know, they, they use some of the recipes, you know, to to sort of actually get that message across. It's like, look, these people come from the fens and eat things like eels. Uh, <laughs> you know, how, how could they be allowed to run the country? Moving away from that a bit and thinking more about the museum and. You know, I think I read somewhere that, and you've already talked about the fact that you have got this magnificent collection. And I think that there are over eight hundred objects in the museum. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yes. No, close yeah. and closer. Close on a thousand in the collections as a whole. Although not all of them are on display at any one time, as with most museums. Wow. And have you got any? You have spoken a, a bit about a couple of pieces, but I'm just wondering if you know what's your favourite object in the whole collection. <laughs> well, I, I get asked that on different days and at different days I'll probably give different answers oh, um, fair enough <laughs> uh, yes I mean uh, there there are some beautiful items um, I mean as well as the ones I've already mentioned uh, you know one of the most remarkable survivals is what's reputed to be Cromwell's hat um, which is an original wool felt 17th century wool felt hat it's the right type of hat the right type of period again it passed down through the family so it's got a very good provenance to it and uh, reputed the hats that he wore when he dismissed Parliament in April 1653. Ah. Um, uh, uh, We have, uh, there are four swords in existence that could be provenance to have belonged to Cromwell. We've got three of them, um, uh, which are beautiful items as well. It's been quite deadly in their own way. Um, I think I think one of the, the the most interesting items um, 
is the medical chest we have, which is an apothecary's chest, oh. which is uh, a beautiful cabinet that has uh, silver gilt uh, canisters inside it that would have originally contained the various pills and potions that um, uh, would have come from Cromwell's various ailments. And uh, we, we know that he suffered from uh, the ague, what the, basically today we call malaria, contracted from the pens, um, which he had various bouts of throughout his life. Uh, we know he had kidney stones, and we know throughout his life he battled with depression. And um, we have a letter written in 1652, he's writing to a close friend, and he's talking about his depression. And, um, you know, like many people, sort of, you know, somebody who's had one or two issues like that in the past, you sort of, you, you recognise the language inside it. It seems very modern in certain respects in the fact of, you know, here's somebody who feels quite isolated and uh, away from his friends and um, he, he's very, feels very alone and unsure with the world. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the most famous figures in British history. What I find or what I found really interesting actually throughout the course of our conversation is that this whole chat really has has shown Cromwell and his family to me in a completely different light and I feel like I've seen them in a more I've seen the more human side of Mm. them um, which has been really quite interesting and I had no idea that Cromwell suffered from depression and in some ways I can completely I can completely get my head around why that might have been the case and in other ways it just it just seems it just seems unreal because he does always seem like this larger than life figure who people or certainly I just assume um, was this really strong leader during the civil war and, you know, who, who sort of took control of the country effectively. Mm. So yeah, so that it's, wow, that's really, really fascinating. It it ties together, I think, a number of aspects of his life. Um, You know, we know he went through sort of nervous breakdown, sort of about 1628, he sort of diagnosed with what they called at the time melancholia. Um, He went to see a um, specialist called Theodore Myern, who was recognised as being probably the the leading expert in Europe at the time on uh, mental health issues, as we might call them today. And um, he, he sort of uh, suffering. I mean, he was having financial problems at the time. As I say, he'd, he'd come down and into society, kind of moving to, to St. Ives and becoming a tenant farmer. And it's there he discovers his faith. And it becomes, um, I think, his faith is developed as a means, partly as a coping mechanism. And as a, as a Puritan, he sort of sees, um, it believes very strongly in God's providence, that God has a path for him. And it's interesting, the periods of his life when he's busy and he seems to have a very clear path. So when he's soldiering during the Civil War or when he's Lord Protector, those periods, he doesn't seem to suffer from his depression at all because, he, you know, he has a purpose and he can see what he's doing. And that's God's path set for him, uh, where he has his depressive episodes are the bits in between um, where, you know, as he sees it, God's path is not clear for him. He doesn't understand what God's got in purpose for him. And, uh, you know, without a path or direction um, uh, and a kind of, you know, purpose he sees, he sees it in life, that, that's where Cromwell tends to feel, I think, a bit lost and goes through these sorts of progressive episodes. Mm. So um, in, in one sense, it sort of seems very comparable to uh, us today, but also in terms of um, obviously the, the element of faith and 
particularly um, that sort of element of faith, Puritanism seems quite also alien to us today in the 21st century in our very secular society. Mm. So he's, he's an interesting mixture and um, he's full of contradictions and um, people sort of say, do you think he's a hero or villain? I don't think he's either. I think he's sort of somewhere in between and black and white and shades of grey at different points in his life. Um, there are some things which I think I think are very admirable and other things, particularly in his campaign in Ireland, which I find very difficult to deal with. You know, he, he's a fascinating character and, um, you know, therefore that's that's what makes him so interesting. Definitely. And I think that's a very, very balanced view. And, you know, of course, Elizabeth would have been by his side, presumably supporting him throughout all of these moments, um, mm. which, you know, also very interesting. And I, it does make me, I, I've said to you before, and I, I really, I really do have to get along to the museum because I am desperate to visit and even more so now. And what I also find really interesting about the museum is the idea of adopting an object. So mm. can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we run our uh, sort of annual adopt an object scheme. We're about to kind of relaunch this again in the new year with a sort of new subscription scheme, which is the idea that um, effectively people sort of sponsor an object. And um, from our point of view, because we're an independent museum, uh, we get a, a sm- you know a small grant from the local council, which is very much appreciated. But otherwise, we have to generate our own income to keep the museum going. Um, you know, we we try all sorts of fundraising tricks, and it's a, a good way of helping support the collection and uh, those people who subscribe. Sort of um, uh, kind of you know get regular newsletters and uh, offers to events and all sorts of things like that as well. But it also kind of just I suppose ties people to these particular items in the collection and uh, gives people a sort of sense of ownership, not not in reality, but, you know, association with it, as it were. So it, it's quite a nice way of sort of fundraising in the same way as, you know, zoos will do, sort of adopt a penguin or things like that. You know, this is our, our take on that, if you like. Yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. So finally, for those who want to find out more about you and your work, Stuart, and indeed about the Cromwell Museum, where can they find you? Best place is obviously have a look at our website, which is uh, cromwellmuseum.org. And um, uh, there's lots of information on there, both about the life and times of Cromwell, about the museum. You'll find some of the highlights of the museum's collections. Um, we regularly put up kind of blog posts on there about different bits and pieces. We just put one up there about, uh, funnily enough at the moment, how Cromwell really didn't cancel Christmas. <laughs> uh, and uh, then we've obviously, we have a lively social media presence as well. You'll find us uh, with daily posts on Twitter and Facebook and regular videos on our YouTube channel as well. So you can kind of find out about all different aspects of the, the, the um uh, Cromwell's and uh, his life and times and uh, of course obviously do come and see us so we're open uh, currently Tuesdays to Saturdays um, we're located in Huntington in the centre of the town uh, we're free of mission although we do welcome donations from our visitors and um, we'd love for people to come and see us absolutely fantastic well I'll certainly be one of those at some point next year hopefully <laughs> um, but thank you so much Stuart it's been absolutely fascinating and I've learned so much from today and uh, I certainly will be looking at Cromwell in a different light from now on so thank you. You're very welcome thank you very much. Thanks so 
much for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. Don't forget to check out the website of the Cromwell Museum in Huntingdon, or indeed, pay them a visit. We will be putting pictures of Elizabeth Cromwell's pendant on our social media pages, at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please press subscribe or leave us a rating and review. Thanks so much and join us for the next episode of History Gems.